Hi guys. Hi semua. Hello hello hello. Now you are listening to Sasaran Podcast. Kini anda sedang mendengar podcast Sasaran. Special to you by Editri Edition of Sasaran. Dibawakan khas oleh Sasaran edisi ke-83. Enjoy. Selamat mendengar. So, welcome back to another episode of the Sasaran Podcast, a student project by Semester 5 Journalism students from UITM Shalom. Your host for today, me, Izzel Ikram, and... And I am Aisha Zakir. So, the topic of our podcast today surrounds our Malaysian media, specifically in the context of democracy. So, you know, as future media practitioners, Izzel and I, and I'm sure many other students, are also invested in this topic because we would really like to know the media landscape that we will be participating in. So to get um, you know a first-hand perspective, we're very excited to be joined by our guest speaker today, Tamina Kaosji, who is a broadcast journalist, activist, and uh, media personality. So hi, Tamina. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me, Izul and Aisha. Pleasure to be with you here on this episode of your podcast. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Um, but before we get into the talking point, uh, Tamina, can you tell us a bit more more about yourself and your background and what made you want to do what you're currently doing? Oh, all right. Yep, yeah, sure thing. So I'm an independent broadcast journalist, and uh, basically the work that I do focuses on um, economics, business, technology, and um, always integrating gender mainstreaming as mm-hmm. a focal perspective. Um, I currently host uh, Money Matters, which is TV3 Malaysia's flagship financial talk show. Um, I'm also the host and producer of my own talk show called Tea with Tamina that focuses on lived realities and social issues that particularly impact women and girls in Malaysian society. I see. Oh, yeah, I actually, um, for, so actually I've met Tamina before because I used to be in an NGO called Stand Up My who focuses on uh, mm-hmm. that focuses on fighting SGBV and I remember Tamina when like I heard you speak during the event I knew you were like basically you were the highlight of the event because even post event when I was talking around with my friends who made it to the event they were they were all like amazed and they were all like wait I'm going to look her up I'm going to look her up so <laughs> My yeah, from that's very kind I, of you. Yeah, it was like I think everyone was because you have a way of speaking to people and making sure that they know these are the things that we need to care about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm really glad that more and more I see especially much younger Malaysians just like yourself in university and even much younger, like even like primary school kids who will yeah, reach out true. to me via my social platforms and you know want to talk about or want to learn more about issues that impact all of us, especially social justice. Yeah, and I feel a lot of that is actually connected to the media landscape. So, yeah, it's absolutely important that we discuss this. Yeah. So, yeah. so without further ado, So let's get into the background of our topic today. As for yourself, as someone who's been in the industry for quite some time, I'm sure you have witnessed mm-hmm. firsthand the many changes in our media landscape from, you know, being supposedly free to being restricted. So I wanted to know from your from your point of view, how did our media start becoming perspective uh, start becoming restrictive? 
Okay. Uh, well, the interesting thing about the Malaysian media landscape is one has to always look at what the basis is of um, legislation uh, in any country in which one is operating, right? So when it comes to Malaysia, we, of course, have inherited a lot of um, post-colonial laws that, mm -hmm. um, in fact, when you look at everything in perspective in 2020, are fairly outdated. However, certain amendments, etc., have not been made. So to date, just FYI, we currently have 37 laws and sub-laws that actually repress freedom of speech and expression in Malaysia. These include um, the bigger ones that most of us would know a little bit about, like SOSMA, PPPA, the Sedition mm -hmm. Act, the Official Secrets Act. Yeah. So when you actually want to look at the perspective um, right before 2020 began, um, and for this year at least, uh, Malaysia actually ranked 101 on the World Press Freedom Index. This is by Reporters Without Borders, uh, RSF, that produces this annual um, survey. So this actually, interestingly enough, it showed Malaysia going up 22 spots following um, 2019's ranking of 123. So we've actually been progressing a lot and this, and this progress in a much freer media landscape began in roughly about 2013, right? Mm -hmm. But then again, this latest change in position, which I'm talking about 101, this was attributed to the, to the former change in government, which happened in May 2018. Right. So, yes. So when that happened in May 2018, um, Reporters Without Borders observed, number one, a more relaxed general environment for journalists. There was a decline in self-censorship, as well as a more balanced reporting in especially print media. But however, um, despite the fact that there was increased media freedom, even during uh, and post May 2018, there was no fulfillment of election pledges from Pakatan Harapan to repeal or amend repressive laws that affected freedom of expression and speech. Which brings us to today, we of course had a um, changeover of power and government in mm -hmm. uh, March, uh, in early March 2020. And we have still inherited the same legacy of rigmarole laws, right? So yes. it remains to be seen how the current government will fare in next year's press freedom rankings. Um, and in the meanwhile, let's also not forget about um, a very important issue that was brought about by the uh, media community. And this is something that we have been working on collectively, even way before my time, even before I was born, <laughs> for the past 40 <laughs> odd years. Um, journalists in the Malaysian community have also been working towards the establishment of a media council. So um, this conversation got a lot more airtime as well as um, some certain um, progress was made by the setting up of a pro tem committee for the formation of a media council. But all of that, of course, the pandemic, change in government, etc., all taken into view, is all currently on hold. So that's where we are at right now. Mm -hmm. Do you foresee maybe um, the current government actually working hard to implement some of the, you know, the amendments to the laws or do you feel like it is quite in stasis right now? Um, it, it appears that there is a huge impasse because naturally, as with any other country in the world, not just Malaysia, the focus is still, of course, on pandemic um, recovery mm -hmm. as well as resources are channeled there. But that brings up another really interesting question, guys, which is that when you 
have an extraordinary circumstance like the pandemic, the one thing that increases is social media usage. Mm, And most Malaysians, um, actually, we get our news online, okay? So when you get your news online, um, this can mean two things. It can either mean that you're extremely well-informed or you also run the risk of being terribly misinformed. That is true. Uh, Let me just give you a perspective. Let me just give you a perspective, yeah? So MCMC did a 2018 internet user survey, right? And this found out that 87.4% of Malaysians are internet users. That is roughly 28.7 million of us. Mm -hmm. And this is up from... 2016's numbers, which was 76.9% of Malaysians. So in just two years, the numbers increased from 76% to 87%. So that's a huge um, leap and bound, right? And then if you're going to look at 2020 average numbers, which are not out yet, you can naturally assume the numbers have gone all the way up. But now this is what's concerning. Um, Internet usage going up, that means it's better. People have more access. But cybersecurity Malaysian research shows that Malaysians ignore journalism and prefer social media. So this increases their exposure to disinformation, Mm -hmm. um, so-called fake news, as well as online hate speech. So which is why, you know, for example, uh, Twitter, Jaya, can feel like a very toxic space sometimes when you go Mm -hmm. in there (laughs) discussing discussing current issues. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I'm sure we're all pretty familiar with that. Yes, very much so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So when it comes to like these, um, going back to the the laws and the legislation, going back Mm -hmm. to these like, um, you can label these laws as kind of archaic or sometimes draconian, you know. So what is keeping... Um, Malaysia from repealing or amending these laws other than the political political um, platform? Um, I would think it is because of perhaps a lack of cognizance around how much of an influence social media plays in actually democratizing the media space. And this is something which... Um, Plenty of governments worldwide uh, actually, um, you know, uh, have fallen victim to in a sense. They haven't been able to realize that the power of social media is such that regardless of what uh, mainstream platforms such as government based um, or um, national news channels would be putting out, um, independent journalism will not only find a platform, but people will also start to get their verified news from there. So it's actually in the favor of any government of the day in Malaysia to repeal these laws because ultimately it means that there is more access to information. There is a greater likelihood that the information is verified and that we can actually long-term work towards solving social issues rather than having things be pushed under the carpet. But You know, it takes a lot of sensitization as well as a lot of hard work from uh, many different departments, including the legal affairs department, etc., to be able to bring about changes, particularly in legislation. So um, this was actually one really interesting thing. And this is the truth of the fact. Yeah, the truth of the fact is this, that um, the answer to um, solving the issues in Malaysian media is not more legislation, but legal reform to remove these oppressive laws. And um, if you're able to remove these oppressive laws, that's when um, journalism, um, civil society, as well as government can work together better to promote 
promote democracy. I think there is a fear and suspicion on all on all three sides, and this ultimately um, prevents um, healthier dialogue from happening, which could push us faster towards the change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, you know, speaking of you know being restricted under the in the media landscape and having these laws implemented. Can you maybe take us through some of your own experiences or even experiences from your colleagues in which they were maybe silenced, especially as someone who, because um, I have also first-hand experience in being silenced, especially someone who advocates a lot for things that are taboo in our society. And mm-hmm. what about you yeah. as a media practitioner? Have you ever had these experiences? even like in an unprofessional capacity or a professional capacity? Mm, definitely. Um, well, I would say in my experience, um, Malaysian um, journalists by and large do practice a whole lot of self-censorship. And this occurs mm-hmm. as a direct outcome due to, um, as I mentioned, the 37-odd laws and sub-laws, which can actually penalize the work that you do as a journalist if it is deemed unfavorable. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, there's, 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 there's loads of examples as well, especially what has happened uh, post-pandemic and the um, connected lockdowns. For example, um, SCMP journalist um, Tashni Sukumaran, she was interrogated mm-hmm. by the police for reporting on migrants being arrested to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Now, um, cycle back a couple of months later, this was sometime in May, during May Day, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Rates that were conducted. And all the way down to us in um, late November, early December, whereby um, crowded um, quarters of not just migrants, but also um, factory and migrant workers are the ones that have seen the huge increase in COVID-19 case burdens. So it actually comes out all the way down many months later that the journalists in question, the publication in question, all the way to even, um, you know, the international media outlet that was accused of um, once again painting the government in a negative light also was actually performing due diligence. So that's what it comes out to. Yes, there is no need to fear um, thorough investigative independent journalism because um, the entire ethos of journalism is not just access to information, but access to information that empowers policymakers, governments, as well as citizens into making better decisions. So when when you have a knee-jerk reaction, rather than address what is being reported, this is what you get after almost, you know, five, six months down the road. Yeah. So that's what I can say about that, you know. So it's, it's really unfortunate because if, let's say, for example, if um, the, the condition of living quarters and working conditions had been adequately ar- um, addressed that early on in May 2020, I dare say, even from an epidemiological perspective, uh, we would not be suffering the COVID-19 burden that we're currently going through. Mm, yes, yeah. that is true. I remember when that news outlet was under heat, it was a very, very big issue. And there Absolutely. were even like yeah, there were even a lot of debates among students. Like, was it actually mm-hmm. ethical for the news outlet to do that? When in fact, mm. I feel like that question shouldn't even be surfaced because from the beginning we've been taught that no matter what, journalism is about reporting true events and true information. So exactly. yeah, it, exactly. Shouldn't so when yeah, 
Yeah, you can't label, um, you know, um, news um, reporting as so-called fake news just because it is critical, you know, um, mm -hmm. and it and it ought not to result in um, both journalists or media organization being uh, personally attacked and being restricted from access because that is not um, the essence and the spirit of journalism. It's the same uh, in the same way you can think of it as, for example, restricting a doctor from treating patients. You know, mm -hmm. journalists perform the same role. We look at what is uh, what is often wrong, what can often be done to improve things, and what are the actionable solutions. There is no reason to be sensitive to it, and then all the way down the road, actually um, suffer the unfortunate consequences of not having listened to what was sound advice. Yeah. Yes, yeah, true. Yeah. And it's always, oftentimes, we're told. We have to choose between um, making sure that our report, especially if it's like mm -hmm. investigative, and we have to make sure that what we report won't cause harm. But then, that's right. Yeah, the question comes to mind: like, harm to which party? Are we talking about harm to the public or harm to the government or anybody who is in power? Yep. Correct. And let's always remember that Article Ten of the Federal Constitution of Malaysia actually provides for the right to freedom of speech and expression mm -hmm. for all citizens, not just the media. But at the mm -hmm. same time, we've got the repressive laws that, such as the Penal Code, Communications and Multimedia Act, Sedition Act, Printing Presses and Publication Act, which um, will actually curb journalistic expression. Yeah. Yes, it is a little bit funny how very contrary <laughs> those two are. Yeah. Ensuring that Absolutely. we have press freedom and then also implementing these laws. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, countries which um, top the press freedom rankings um, each year after year regularly, they are also the ones, I'm talking about the Norways, the Swedens, the Denmarks, mm -hmm. the Finlands, they're also the ones who show the greatest degree of not just digital hygiene, but also digital safety, digital ethics, as well as much lower rates of um, citizens being um, subject to misinformation or believing so-called fake news. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. Do so, you believe that? Oh, sorry. <laughs> You want to go or? <laughs> I, know, I just wanted to know okay. like a little bit. So basically, we are, mm -hmm. a lot of parties have basically labeled Malaysia as a pseudo-democracy mm -hmm. based on the draconian laws of our media. So do you think that Malaysia, can we actually call Malaysia a democratic country or is it not at that level yet? Oh, I think we're absolutely a democratic country. And I think uh, Malaysians, especially uh, not just young Malaysians, really, I think all Malaysians actually grew a much wider social conscience, mm -hmm. particularly after the May 2018 um, general elections. I have mm -hmm. found particularly the digital space to be a much more vociferous avenue for not just um, debate, but discussions, as well as people putting forth their opinions in a much more educated way. Sure, you do have, you know, that um, certain segment of um, social media or netizens in particular, who are always going to be more towards the troll-like variety, yes, you know? Um, but, at the, but at the same time, I do think discussions as well as understanding and sensitization has, has really increased. I think it can only get better from here. And when you particularly combine um, 
public awareness together with youth political participation, um, mm-hmm. I only see the tide changing even more for the better. I would definitely not call Malaysia a pseudo-democracy because ultimately, mm-hmm. do remember, um, the vote can be taken by the yeah. rakyat. It belongs to them. And mm-hmm. um, we do also potentially have another general election probably coming up oh, yes. once um, the COVID-19 tide yep. subsides. So that will truly show where we are. Yeah. So oh, following and- up to what we just talked about, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> talking about uh, like, Yes, yes, the democratic situation or might get better, but let's get back to the, the frontliners yeah. of the media scope, the journalists. So will the like we are the frontliners, we don't have that great of um, job security or we have these restrictive laws um, preventing us from doing our jobs as a watchdog or the fourth estate. So will the situation for journalists ever get better in Malaysia or is that still something very far down the line, in your opinion? Yeah, well, in my perspective, first and foremost, Izul, what we need to be able to address actionably for Malaysian media is um, what the last two, three years have brought about because of the rise of digital journalism. And by that, I mean um, adoption of digital platforms. Um, The old media formats of not just print, but even broadcasts are really, um, they're, they're slowly dying out. It will take a little bit more time for them to, um, you know, have kneeled their final death knell in Malaysia, especially as we adopt digital trends um, comparatively slower. But there is a need for media, for publishers, for editors in particular, and media owners to be able to look at how to make media sustainable. There have been thousands of journalists and media related job losses in the past two to three years. And this is both a combination of what the pandemic has brought about more recently, as well as pre-existing problems, which is that our media organizations are just not formatting themselves in a manner that Malaysians want to consume their media. Talking outside of even journalism, let's just look at uh, mainstream media, such as entertainment media. Uh, Plenty of Malaysians are, you know, willing to pay for overseas streaming platforms all Mm -hmm. the way from your Netflixes, Amazons, etc. to, you know, even people who would be watching and consuming, let's say, Indonesian um, TV serials or K-pop dramas, right? So um, what's happening is that there isn't enough um, vigorous uh, interest in the local market, whether it comes to entertainment or even news media. And only when that is fixed can you actually make um, the media industry a more stable, uh, a more stable, not just a job perspective, but an industry that is independent from having to be either politically biased or inclined. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so let's go to the following talking point of, I think we touched upon this talking point already, but um, the role of social media and what role it plays in the future of media democracy. Like, for example, the internet and social media has played a big role in numerous countries in terms of social democracy, in terms mm-hmm. of like uh, political, political participation for um, youths and everyone of the like, or uh, citizen journalism as playing as a platform for these citizen journalists to uh, disseminate uh, information, but it can also play a counteractive role. It can be like kind of like a double-edged sword in, in some words where you can also disseminate false information or um, sometimes labeled as fake news to 
the public who sometimes unconsciously or subconsciously um, consume it without really fact-checking. And this kind of thing can be seen currently in the US or even in Thailand. Oh, yes. Where, yes, yes, everywhere. Yeah, everywhere really around the world. So how would you um, address the current situation and what kind of role does social media play in the future of media democracy? Hmm. Okay, so this is an uh, this is a, I think a fascinating question for any journalist out there right now, because mm-hmm. it's all about um, how do we hack hate capitalism and social media algorithms. Mm. So that's actually what it boils down to. Um, just 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 imagine looking at your own social media feed. Yeah, let's say okay, fine. Um, cute cat video, millions of views, right? Okay, <laughs> yes. that's on the that's on one side yeah. of the good extreme. Sure, we all like that. You know, yeah, it's it's cute, it's appealing, etc. But at the same time, what are some other types of videos or content that always gets you know the most amount of views or gets shot up to the top? Um, this would be headlines which um, are violent or, you know, Mm -hmm. um, issues that are polarizing, because let's remember that this is the kind of content that gets clicks. And ultimately, social media algorithms on platforms all the way from Facebook to Twitter to even Instagram are inclined towards skewing and highlighting that kind of content. So it has to start from the very root of it, which is when Malaysians start getting online, which is as young as, you know, kindergarten or even primary school, we need better digital education. We actually need this to be integrated into the mainstream education system so that you, you're not having, you know, children, school children growing up into um, cyber bullies online. And we've seen a lot of these cases as well. Um, it even escalates all the way to another nasty extreme, what we've seen with the V2K Telegram expose yes. uh, a few months ago, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, all of this, where does this come from? Um, the online space is increasingly harmful, particularly for uh, women, for girls girls, for anyone who is gender diverse, for Mm -hmm. anybody who might be differently abled. So all of these are ongoing concerns. And unless we um, tackle it through mass education and awareness campaigns, that is looking at how we actually use our digital time, not whether we have access or whether we know how to go online, it cannot be addressed. It's only going to get worse. You know, I am not being pessimistic here, but I think I'm being a realist because, you know, we get we get most of our information, our news headlines off an app, most likely from your Twitter or from your Facebook. Right. That is actually not good digital hygiene. (laughs) And even though I admit to it, even as a journalist, I must say that you, you do have to go that extra step. To, okay, fine, you see the headline, you see everybody's reaction, the in the comments, mm-hmm. but make sure that you actually read the article. Form your own educated opinions and deductions about it rather than just clicking share, you know? Yeah, I, think yeah. It, so, I think it says a lot. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you no, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, no I, just, ahead. I was just saying, like, I think it says a lot on how much we rely on social media when if we're looking for a particular news story, we actually mm-hmm. go to that news outlet's Twitter or Instagram first instead of yeah. their actual, yeah. like the actual website where the whole story is written down. 
Sure, sure, absolutely. And I think it is because, well, let's not let's not uh, play a blame game either. Human beings, we're social creatures. You sure. know what our social frame of reference, <laughs> uh, what it means to people in our peer circle, is also important to us, right? Mm-hmm. And you're most likely to see some article highlighted in, let's say, your Twitter feed because a friend or two of yours has commented on it, or shared it, or liked it, etc. So that yes. is actually how the entire you know system works. There's nothing wrong with that, but they are inherently also huge black holes. <laughs> so we need to be more aware of that rather than just succumbing to it. And, you know, at the end of the day, you get involved in a huge uh, Twitter flame war. Yeah. <laughs> and those are awful. <laughs> yeah. And often. <laughs> yeah, very often. Yeah. So would you say like... Um, these mainstream media organizations like migrating to these social media platforms, it, it could be, it's seen as a good thing, right? But mm-hmm. do you ever see them um, like, because when people consume social media, they don't really instantly go for that. When they go for news and try to find information on these social media platforms, they don't really look up for these um, mainstream sources. Instead, they just follow, they just read whatever they see and just consume it. So would you say yeah. that um, tech these like, tech giants or these com- the companies behind these social media platforms should play a, a bigger role in pushing forward these mainstream um, organizations or should they play a more laissez-faire um, uh, point of view in terms of managing the platform itself? Because that can be seen as a more like um, f- free way of managing it so people can have more mm-hmm. freedom of speech, but it'll also right. impair people's information because they might be consuming fake information. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think you make some great points there, uh, Izo, because when it comes to social media, tech giants in particular, just like the recently um, established Facebook Oversight Board, which was actually welcomed as much overdue, but also as a good step by most journalists and associations globally, I still feel that not enough is being done. The reason being that social media platforms are so very influential um, that actually much more needs to be invested by these tech giants into having their platforms properly moderated. Right. For example, um, one thing that has skyrocketed during uh, COVID lockdowns is actually the use of TikTok, right? And Mm -hmm. um, even um, very recently for just the Malaysian market, um, the TikTok um, offices have been expanding and employing uh, far more content moderators than before because they just receive such a huge deluge of content on a daily basis that needs Mm -hmm. moderation. But what that tells you is there's clearly not enough investment going in from the tech platforms. So I feel that there needs to be more um, policies and legislation that actually um, holds tech giants responsible for having more stringent moderation in place, which would, of course, include them investing a lot more money into this. Because um, currently, it is just, it's simply not enough. The level of um, abuse that um, progressive human rights-centric voices, be they female or even male, receive in the online sphere is just Mm -hmm. shocking. It's just Mm -hmm. appalling. You know, and this leads to um, directly these voices either silencing themselves or basically muting themselves. And this is absolutely not just unhealthy, but it means that a huge shift in power dynamics is needed. I do believe that local governance up to a certain um, aspect 
um, has improved, especially in Malaysia. We have more laws now and policies that are able to empower those who receive harassment or um, have perhaps had non-consensual images leaked online to be prosecuted. Mm -hmm. That's great. But more needs to be done from the tech giants. And that's simply going to involve them investing more money, which is what they're very reluctant to do. So there has Mm -hmm. to be... Um, a framework, a global framework of or mechanism that's going to hold them accountable because it, this simply cannot go on the way it has. You know, we've seen it over and over again in many different countries, all the way from places like you know Cameroon to uh, you know uh, Bangladesh, etc., where actual um, riots or um, racial conflicts, etc., even um, even murders and deaths have occurred because of misinformation spread, mm-hmm. particularly through the Facebook platform. This is no yes. small joking matter. And yep. when you're dealing with, um, you know, the entire world experiencing the COVID-19 pandemic together, think of how fertile the ground is for um, vaccine-related misinformation, mm-hmm. you know? As much as the only thing, literally, that most people can talk about is um, vaccines right now at the yeah. same time there is an equal number of voices on the other side of the chamber shouting uh, no no i'm like where does that misinformation come from it's it's a mm-hmm. very very long winding downward spiral yeah and you have to hold the platforms accountable because ultimately the um, agendas as well as the conversations and the misinformation is being hosted on their platforms yeah yeah so now that we've discussed about, about what the big tech giants could do, but let's move back towards the context of Malaysia. And um, press freedom is very fra- it's a very fragile thing, right? Like as we've previously discussed, um, depending on the, the government in power, it can change by a whole lot. So the, uh, what kind of measures can we take to ensure that it is maintained or improved in some form? Hmm. All right. Uh, Well, my thoughts on this are that there's a very old idea that professional journalism needs to make a profit. Um, I think in a post-pandemic world, we need to move away from this ideation and we need to stop seeing news as something that needs to make a profit for directors and shareholders. Mm -hmm. As it is such an essential part of civil society and democracy, this whole failed business model doesn't work anymore. Yeah all the way from, you know, much larger globally reputed brands like the New York Times, etc. Um, we need to be looking more at what would the ideal model be. And the most ideal would be that this is ultimately something which is funded by the citizens of a country, let's say Malaysia, citizens pay taxes. Why should not a certain proportion of taxes be allocated towards developing and funding independent investigative journalism? I think if we can come around to understanding just how important this is for a democracy to not just survive, but to thrive, it goes hand in hand, really. Good media and a good democracy. Yeah, you can't separate the two. And if you keep harping on older models of what journalism ought to be, ought not to be, you're completely missing the point because the world of journalism, it's changed radically back from Mm -hmm. even when I Mm -hmm. first went into broadcast about seven, eight years ago. Yeah. All right. That was, that was great. Well, sadly, Zoom only allows 40 minutes and we're (laughs) almost at the end of our meeting. So I would really like, 
I would really like you know to know if you have any sort of advice for young people or like young like people who are just about to set foot into the industry. Do you have anything that particularly that you would like to say to them? Words of、hmm. advice. Well, my my strongest advice would be、um, keep the flame burning, and most importantly, know that you're well within. Your country's constitutional protections,、um, despite the overarching repressive laws that do exist, and more than anything,、um, practice your craft. And by that, I mean make the fullest use of your social platforms to not only build your confidence, but to also refine、um, your research skills, your、um, investigation on、um, topics, as well as your general knowledge, so that. When it comes to you expressing your opinions, not only are they backed by facts and evidence, there's absolutely no denying you the voice that you want、mm-hmm. to have on whichever issue it is that you choose.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I do yeah. remember one thing that really stayed with me <laughs> from the previous for the form that I mentioned previously was you when、mm-hmm. you say always like look up the data on anything that you want to know. Data is very important.、Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.、So、that yeah. stayed with me for a very long time, even until now. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic! I'm glad it did, Aisha. I'm glad it did. Yeah. Yeah. So、uh, this is so sad, but we have reached the end of our session. So actually, this is one of the episodes of the podcast that are leading up to our main event, which is a colloquium, something、mm-hmm. that the journalism students of UITM have at every fifth semester. So basically, it's our final year project. So for our colloquium, it'll be on the seventeenth of December, and yeah, I hope that maybe if you have some time, if you have some spare time, you could actually tune in because it'll be online. All right,、and、I wouldn't、Fantastic. mind. Yeah, I, you can find the information on Instagram. I'm just promoting the event now. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, just before I go, I'd like to leave you with this、um, one statement that I have to make is, which is that journalistic expression—it's not a free for all. It is speech which is constrained by ethical values. And as long as we remember our ethical values as journalists, I think there should be nothing stopping us in reporting without fear or favor. Right. That was. Perfect, Amina. Thank Perfect, you so、Andy. much for joining us today.、Yep. Thank you. It's been a、that. pleasure. Thank you、like、so that, much. Thanks. That was probably the most enlightening session we've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> thank、right. you very much. It's been my pleasure. So, Isa and I would really like to thank everyone who tuned in today to listen to our podcast. And if in the future that you would like to revisit it, you can look up our this episode or any other episode. On our of our Swasaran podcast on our Instagram, which is Colloquium Forty Two K. That is K O L O K I U M Four Two, and this you can see this on our Instagram TV. So yeah, you can check out our other content as well while you're there. And I hope you guys enjoy the podcast for today, as Isol and I also believe that it was very enlightening. And yeah, we hope it will open your eyes to some things that. You may have not been aware of before. So yeah, that's all. Isol, anything else? Just want to say thank you. That's it. Yeah, and stay safe, everyone. Take care、yep. of yourself. Take care of your family members. And that's all. Goodbye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. Terima kasih kerana mendengar podcast kami. Tune me again in next episode. Jumpa lagi di episod akan datang. Bye-bye.